This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today... Could owning a cat increase your risk of cognitive decline? We take a deep dive into the science behind the Doherty model, which is guiding the National Cabinet out of the pandemic restrictions. Professor Sharon Lewin, the director of the Doherty Institute, will be in to help our understanding of this critical intersection of maths, biology and how we live. But let's start with an issue that will be with us long after the pandemic and probably kills far more people on an annual basis, salt intake. High intakes of salt are linked to raised blood pressure, kidney damage, strokes, heart attacks, and may even raise the risk of Alzheimer's disease and autoimmune diseases such as MS and rheumatoid arthritis by increasing tissue damage through oxidative stress, that's biological rust if you like, and, and inflammation. But the problem is we're addicted to salt. But a remarkable trial just published in the New England Journal of Medicine has found that we can reduce our salt intake and save lives without having to fight our addiction necessarily. The co-leader of this clinical trial carried out in China was Professor Bruce Neal, the executive director of the George Institute for Global Health and professor of medicine at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to the Health Report, Bruce. Thanks, Norman. Now, Bruce, when you originally phoned me up and told me about this, uh, this study, you said it was probably the most important piece of work of your career. Yep, um, and I still think that. And, and the reason I think that is that I think this study has something for everyone, and, and, I, and I mean literally everyone in the world, because almost everyone in the world eats salt and almost everyone in the world eats more salt than they should. What is the attributable risk of, of salt, in other words, for premature death? I mean, how much can we blame salt for things? So it, it depends um, a little bit on uh, what you believe, um, and, and there has been a, an element of belief in this, unfortunately. Uh, but it's certainly millions of premature deaths uh, each year, whether it's one, two, three, four, um, there remains some dis- debate about. So tell me about this study and what you did. So what we did was we wanted to try and answer the question once and for all, if we reduce the amount of salt that people ate, could we reduce clinical events? Because we knew that we could reduce blood pressure before this, uh, but we didn't know whether we could prevent strokes, heart attacks and the like. So what we did was we took um, 21,000 Sorry, just just to explain, there's been a debate around this, is if you reduce your blood pressure by reducing your salt, some people have alleged you don't get the benefit in terms of heart attack and stroke reduction because there's something different about that blood pressure reduction compared to doing it with drugs or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Based on some fairly weak epidemiology, it has to be said, but a debate nonetheless. So to try and answer it, we we took 21,000 people from 600 villages uh, in rural China. Uh, We went to rural China because it's relatively easy to replace the salt in uh, rural Chinese diet. Um, We gave half of the people um, a salt substitute, which comprised 75% sodium chloride, so still 75% regular salt and 25% potassium chloride. And the others continued to use um, 100% sodium chloride, so just regular salt. And we then followed them for five years and we recorded um, strokes, heart attacks and deaths uh, in each of the two groups and compared them. And you say it's easier because they weren't eating a lot of processed food. So what what you see is what you get. It was all added to their cooking and and then at the table. Yeah, so at least half of the dietary sodium, um, and it's the sodium that's the bad bit in salt that they consume, comes from what's sort of sometimes termed discretionary salt, which is salt added uh, for seasoning, when you're cooking, uh, or when you're preserving foods. What did you find? 
So we found um, that there was a, a 13%, uh, sorry, a 14% reduction in the risk of stroke, um, a 13% reduction in the risk of what's termed major adverse cardiovascular events, but is effectively strokes and heart attacks combined, and a 12% reduction uh, in the risk of, of premature death. And all of these had extremely um, strong um, p-values, so 0. 0.006 for, for stroke and less than 0. 0.001 for the other two outcomes. Meaning so really, highly statistically significant. Yeah, abs- absolutely. There's, there's no doubt that this was real. And we also we lowered blood pressure by about 3.3 millimetres of uh, systolic, um, 3, 3.3 millimetres of mercury. So that's not far off what you get with a drug? It's not that far off what you get with a drug, no, and the effects are perhaps not that far off what you get with the drug as well. And years of life saved if this was throughout their lives? Did you estimate that? Look, we, we, we haven't estimated that actually, but that's something that we, we do need to estimate. We have estimated or we, we're able to make some estimates of what this might mean in terms of lives saved um, and events averted uh, in China. Um, but uh, we haven't looked at uh, that particular metric yet. So when you taste this salt that's got, uh, well, first of all, harms because potassium can, yep. can do you harm if you have too much potassium in your body. Yeah, so there's a, there's, there's a sort of more theoretical concern um, about uh, the safety of salt substitutes, and that is exactly that if you eat too much salt substitute, your potassium might go up and that can make you prone to cardiac arrhythmias and, and sudden death. And particularly if you've got chronic kidney disease, quite severe chronic kidney disease, you're prone to that, or if you're using other medicines that raise your potassium. So we excluded people by saying, if you've got serious kidney disease, you can't be part of the trial, or if you're using these particular medicines, you, you can't be part of the trial. We saw no evidence of any increased risk uh, of uh, events caused by hyperkalemia, and we saw no evidence of any increased risk of sudden death either. And did you measure their blood levels of potassium? No, we didn't measure blood levels of potassium because this was a, a very large-scale pragmatic study. And very likely, we have missed uh, episodes of biochemical hyperkalemia, but what we almost certainly haven't missed... Yeah, high potassium in the blood. Um, but I think it's unlikely that we've missed sort of clinical events, so serious clinical consequences of hyperkalemia. Can you taste the difference between regular salt and this potassium diluted salt? So the, the particular combination, the 2575 mix, we chose um, in large part because we knew it gave a blood pressure lowering effect, but we also knew it tasted very similar uh, to regular uh, salt. If you put a lot of potassium in, um, it can get a slightly bitter flavor, particularly when you cook with it. Although you can add small amounts of um, selected amino acids uh, as sort of flavor enhancers to control that. Now, let's bring this home. How generalizable is this to Australia? Yes, I think that's the, the million-dollar question. We, we did it in China because it was a great place to prove um, the concept. But I think it is widely generalizable. And the reason I think that is that um, sodium, potassium, blood pressure management, the, these are bits of physiology that are absolutely constant across the entire human race. Um, certainly, the magnitude of benefit you might get from salt substitution will vary depending upon how much discretionary salt you're able to easily replace. But I think the principle of reducing sodium, putting more potassium in the diet as an effective way of getting protection against cardiovascular outcomes and death is, is one that's highly generalizable. Could you regulate it for processed foods? You insisted the salt they use there because that's where we get most of our salt from. Yes, I think um, it's taken 10 years to do this study. I think it's the next 10 years' work is to find ways to make this 
this happen. And um, certainly uh, trying to persuade the food industry to add less sodium and to try and retain more of the potassium that is typically in the products before they get processed uh, in the final um, uh, food products is definitely something we want to do. Um, I think we're also going to need to consider subsidizing the cost of salt substitute to the cost of regular salt in lower income settings if we're going to get the benefits. Salt substitute is still pretty cheap, um, but it is a bit more expensive than salt and it will be a um, something that will stop people using it if uh, the, there is a price difference. So there's still a job of work to be done. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Professor Bruce Neal is Executive Director of the George Institute for Global Health and you with RN's Health Report. Last week, the COVID modelling from the Doherty Institute, which is what the federal government and the national cabinet are relying upon, continued to be debated, including on this programme and many other media outlets. It's important because it helps to define a path to more freedom in the next two or three months, yet may have been misunderstood in terms of what it promises, and like any modelling, has its limitations. So let's stick to the science rather than the politics and take a deeper dive. Professor Sharon Lewin is Director of the Doherty Institute. Welcome back to the Health Report, Sharon. Pleasure to be here, Norman. Now, I suppose to start with any model developed scenarios, it's not predictive of the future. Uh, on the balance of, and they use a balance of variables. And there are three main variables in yours, just to sort of set the scene, because we'll come back to these. Vaccination rates, according to age group, public health and social measures, which really lockdown masks, and what's called TTIQ, testing, tracing, isolation and quarantine. They're the moving parts, but they're interdependent. Have I got that right? Absolutely. Perfect. And the goals, um, what, were, what were the goals you were looking for? Is it, is it suppression? I mean, at various points in, in the document, it's not clear whether it's suppression or hospital admissions, ICU deaths or all three. What were the, goal, what were the outcomes you were looking for from the model? Yeah, I, I just start first of all by saying I wasn't directly involved in the modelling and the modellings um, led by Jodie McVernon, who's head of epidemiology here at the Doherty and was leading a, a large consortium, about 20 modellers, 11 different institutions around the country. And so what they were really doing with these variables is identifying what the scenarios would be in the future with respect to infections, hospitalisations, deaths, um, in the context of different thresholds of vaccinating adults, 50, 60, 70, 80% and what would be those scenarios. And they were did, did it, um, uh, as you say, for the federal government and also used a lot of... Um, it's really important to, to, to understand how much different sources of information went into the modelling. It's the published literature as well as sort of local uh, evidence from, you know, from actually Australia itself, whether it's... Uh, test, trace, isolate, quarantine capacity, whether it's our vaccine supply, our vaccine implementation. So they used all of those kind of real-world aspects that will impact what those scenarios will look like. Now, we hear a lot about 70% full vaccination people aged, of vaccination of people aged over 16 being an important threshold. And you can be forgiven from hearing public statements, not by Doherty, but by others, for getting the impression that the opening up is quite significant at 70%. But that's nowhere in your report, not that I can find. You're, you've been quite conservative about what happens when you're at 70%. Yeah, the, the modelling, sort of, so, so we've got these variables that you are very nicely summarised and then we're looking at what are the scenarios with different mixes of those variables at those four levels. 
And um, yes, at 70% vaccination of the adult population, if you had part, what they call partial test trace isolate quarantine, which was defined as the sort of system we had in, this, in Victoria in July last year, which we knew was suboptimal, and um, little to no public health measures, they then had a prediction of the number of symptomatic infections and deaths you would see at those different vaccine thresholds. And then as they layered in better test trace isolate, more stringent public um, and better test trace isolate and then what levels of public health measures, because it's really the public health social measures are the biggest impact on our daily lives, um, whether, what impact that would have on, on cases and on deaths and at what level could you have fairly minimal public health measures. And so what, what the model actually shows is that at, you know, 70% and, and even better at 80%, if you have optimal test trace isolate quarantine and we can talk about what that might look like and whether that's achievable and at what numbers, you could get away with far less stringent public health measures at very limited time in lockdowns. Lockdowns were still an option, limited time in lockdowns at 70% and almost not used at all at 80%. But I think the main message that I think was missed by many um, is that at 70%, it doesn't just go back to normal. You know, at 70%, we can open up safely if we have these additional measures in place. And they will, they will sort of wax and wane over time, depending on what's happening with local outbreaks and local epidemiology. Um, yeah, so, so it's anywhere between 50 and 60% uh, lockdown at 70%. So just before we go on, why did you stop at 180 days? It only goes out to 180 days. Yeah, there was a pretty um, uh, strong desire to do that, mainly because six months is a really long time in COVID and a lot can change. And once you go out beyond six months, even now, you know, what's going to happen with variants? What's what's we going to see with waning immunity? What are we going to see with boosters? Things could look very different in six months. And as you go out longer with all those added variables, your models or, or scenario planning becomes sort of less tied to reality because a lot can change in six months as we have seen in the last six months and the last 18 months. So let's move to 80%. So at 80%, um, you, again, if you listen to the debate, this is nirvana. Yet, if you look at the, the model at partially effective trace, trace isolating quarantine, which effectively your contact tracing is the shorthand for that and the, the things that go with it, you could be spending 30% of your time in strict lockdown um, versus, if you like, an optimally effective TTIQ. Um, and that, that, that's where this whole debate about the contact tracing comes from because your TTIQ, the, the, the measure you took, and you talked about that, you, talked, you took New South Wales as optimal in, I think, the first wave and partially effective as Victorian second wave, so two points in time, but they were both pre-Delta. So I suppose my question is, can we have optimal trace, trace, isolate and quarantine in the world of Delta? Yeah, I think one important principle is that as you get more and more people vaccinated, you've got fewer and fewer susceptible people, and so therefore the job does get easier. It will get easier when you've got fewer susceptible people. And also, if there, if there is an acceptance of moving from zero COVID to some COVID, and I think that's also an important, it doesn't explicitly say that in the in the document, but if there is that move, 
you're not chasing down every single case, contacts of contacts, for example, and getting down to the source of every chain of transmission, which has been our approach to contact tracing to date while we've been at zero COVID. And we're learning with Delta in New South Wales and Victoria that is does get harder to do. So the requirements of contact tracing will change and as will the pool of susceptible people. So contact tracing for the same number of cases in an environment where you've got 70, 80% people vaccinated is a very different beast to what we're doing right now when you've only got 30% of people vaccinated. Is it with the kind of surge that you're seeing in Israel, in Britain, southern United States, Canada even now? Is, is what... Contact tracing. I mean, at 80%, which is like 65% of the population, you're getting very big surges with very large numbers. I mean, which over... I mean, contact tracing starts to become less effective at around about 50 cases from overseas data, 50 cases a day. You're seeing that in Victoria at the moment. New Zealand is struggling. Um, you know, can you... Is it... Can you really say that contact tracing is going to be so much easier... At 80%? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm predicting it will. Um, we have had very good contact tracing in place now. No one's saying that we're going to be doing optimal contact tracing with hundreds of thousands of cases. The predictions that you're going to get to hundreds of thousands of cases is with pretty much, you know, virtually no contact tracing and no or poor contact yeah. tracing and virtually no public health measures. And the freedom I think day. we need to see the triple package here. So... Absolutely taking the brakes on every single public health measure, yes, you will have problems, and that's what we're seeing in the US. Look at Germany, where you have still got some public health measures, and you can keep... Well, the overall goal here is to what they call the transmission potential, effectively the you know the, the effective reproduction rate, the transmission potential less than one. So the overall goal is that you will bring in public health measures of different severity and hopefully not too much lockdown, um, and I think the prediction there was at 70, with 70% um, coverage, you'd estimate about 20% of the time in lockdown, 80% virtually no time in lockdown. So you, you, you're still aiming to get that That's with optimal, potential less than one. That's with yeah. optimal TTIQ, whether I mean, it's a big assumption. And of course, New South Wales has got very large numbers and is likely to continue with very large numbers. Uh, which means that you've got very much suboptimal, I mean, already in New South Wales with Delta and even with growing immunisation rates, contact tracing is pretty terrible. It's not the fault of the contact tracers, but, I mean, they still haven't got cases they've gone back to July with. Yeah, that's right. So what? Um, so how does that affect are, things? Um, well, if you open up um, with 70% vaccinated with thousands of cases, the model still holds. I mean, the trajectory is the same. You will reach that peak of the estimate of at 70% of 300,000 cases with partial TTIQ. So where you start is important of how effectively your TTIQ can keep, the chest trace isolate can keep up, which is why the public health measures are still important, which is why there is no freedom day when you hit 70% and so, you can just do everything. So, but just to be clear, you're saying there's a set number of cases you're going to reach and it's just a question of how fast you get there. If you've got no, if you've got partial chest trace isolate and minimal public health and social measures, public health and social measures clearly work. Now, if you actually look in the document, they're defined as what they call baseline, low, medium and high. And at different times, you will need that. So I think, I think 
the um, I'm, I'm not really sure where you want to take the questioning other than to try and say that it's going to be very difficult with large numbers. Of course, it's going to be very difficult with large numbers. Well, we, we... The vaccination does work. Vaccination does break that link between infections and deaths, which we've seen around um, in many countries. And there will be a shift in thinking of how we will live with COVID. And so the, what the models try and do is put some parameters around the relative contributions of vaccination, which the more the better. There's no one can deny that. And no one can deny there's a break in the link between infections and deaths. And then what we need to do if we want to maintain these very low numbers of COVID, and I don't think we can talk zero COVID, um, with what other, other, other additional tools do we need? And I think if you look around the world, yes, we are seeing very different scenarios um, pan out. Um, but you, the, the main message is vaccination does still need some public health measures, but we can live differently once we have higher levels of vaccination. I mean, my point was that you can get explosive growth with, uh, with a short serial interval. In other words, you get infected sooner. There's probably a higher K number. In other words, a higher proportion of people pass it on. You've got a higher contagiousness, which is probably higher than the estimate you've made at 3.6, which was for New South Wales in March, where there was no outbreak. You could get explosive growth, which means that your hosp- before you get under control, your hospitals and ICUs are overwhelmed, which is the fear in New South Wales. Yeah, yeah. Let's just go back a bit. The um, the sort of the the baseline uh, spread of COVID. Um, no one's denying that the uh, ref delta is higher between six to eight, and um, the estimate was three point six of what we'd already had in place with TT with with test trace, isolate, and quarantine. I think a real unknown at the moment, though, is the real impact that vaccines have on transmission. I mean that we certainly know the numbers on symptomatic COVID. And the best data on transmission comes from household studies in the UK that was the alpha variant showing that both AstraZeneca and Pfizer led to a 50% risk of transmission. We don't really know that answer for Delta. So, yes, there are many, many variables here that are still a bit unknown. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. My final question, I have to be brief because we're running out of time, is how we actually move, be- no criticism of the Doherty model, but just we've just moved beyond modelling because we're living through it right now and we're seeing the cases from overseas and we've just got to get on and immunise. Oh, yeah. I mean, modelling all gives you, it helps in the scenario of planning for what to expect. Immunisation, I mean, I think, the, you know, the, 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 the benefit of immunisation we see so profoundly in so many countries, look at Singapore, look at Denmark, look at Germany, countries that are vaccinating with public health measures in place. And um, yes, we've got to move on and immunise. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Professor Sharon Loon is Director of the Doherty Institute. If you have a cat or you've been pregnant, or both, you've probably heard of Toxoplasma gondii infection or toxoplasmosis. It's a parasite you can get infected with via cat poo or eating undercooked meat. And for most people, the symptoms are mild. Pregnant women are advised to be wary because it can cause birth defects. But it also seems to have an effect on the brain. Mice infected with Toxoplasma gondii are more likely to be bolder and less fearful, which gives cats an advantage as predators. But our big, strong human brains aren't going to be affected by this little parasite, are they? Think again. 
A new paper has pulled together previous studies and found the infection is linked to worse short-term memory, executive function and cognitive speed. Here to tell us just how worried we should be is one of the authors, Dr Ian Sutherland, a psychiatrist from the University of Amsterdam. Ian, your paper found the degree of impairment was only mild. So why is this a problem? Um, yeah, the, um, uh, uh, luckily the, the impact of uh, uh, this uh, parasite uh, on our cognition is uh, pretty mild, but um, uh, about one-third of the global population uh, is currently um, infected with this uh, parasite. And um, this meta-analysis uh, builds on previous findings that um, uh, we have reported as well that uh, uh, we see, in uh, uh, especially in patients with schizophrenia, but also uh, uh, patients with other psychiatric disorders, that this parasite is more prevalent, or the antibodies against this parasite, as well as in people uh, who uh, commit suicide attempts uh, or are involved in uh, traffic accidents. Um, so that led us to, um, uh, to investigate whether uh, uh, this uh, parasite can also alter cognition in, uh, in humans. It's pretty scary to think that something that so many people seem to have encountered can have such big effects, even if drawing the line between them is, is a bit difficult. How worried should we be about it? What sort of things should we be doing differently? Um, well, I think um, uh, uh, from all these findings, uh, slowly you can see a picture that, um, uh, uh, that this parasite can indeed have adverse uh, effects on, the, uh, on the, our health. Um, and I think it's, uh, oh, even though it's, uh, um, uh, it's quite modest, um, um, it's, uh, still significant enough to, uh, uh, to try to prevent this infection or to, uh, to see if we can find ways, um, uh, that the, the, the infection rates will, will decrease. How do you know that it's this parasite and not one of the other million things that go on in our bodies that would be driving this change? Um, yeah, that's, um, uh, uh, that's, I think, still a difficult, uh, a difficult one. Um, uh, because when you have an association, uh, you are not sure that it's also causally linked. Um, um, we do know from, uh, uh, from uh, animal studies that when uh, uh, warm-blooded animals are infected with this parasite, that their behavior changes, that their uh, cognitive performance changes. So we have a strong indication that there is a causal link, but um, uh, to date, we cannot be absolutely sure, but there is a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. So the studies that you've done most recently have pulled together previous studies. So you're pulling together a fairly robust body of evidence. What do you wish uh, people uh, in the general public would understand about the work that you've been doing? Um, well, um, I think the, 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 uh, uh, the pandemic has, uh, has teached us that uh, life forms try to get the better of other life forms constantly, all the time. Um, um, and I think uh, uh, this parasite is no exception. Um, um, it is uh, a quite uh, mild effect, so it's not that you should be uh, terribly worried about your cognitive performance once you are uh, infected. Um, uh, you probably wouldn't notice the, uh, really the difference. It's 
just when you look at the population as a whole that you that you uh, can really see uh, a different uh, picture emerging. Um, so I think the 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 take home message is that for an individual it might be difficult to um, uh, uh, to see uh, the negative consequences of this infection but for uh, uh, for our public health it is an uh, important finding well just as we got our head around one uh, new pathogen we've got another one to worry about uh, Ian Sutherland thank exactly. you so much for joining yeah. us Dr. Ian Sutherland is a psychiatrist from the University of Amsterdam. Norman, have you been uh, cleaning any kitty litter trays recently? Luckily, I don't like cats and I'm <laughs> allergic to them. And the, pro- the problem with being allergic to cats, cats know that. And whenever you're near a cat, they come <laughs> to you and deliberately rub up against you because they've got this malignant personality. That's such a cat move. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's mailbag time now and I've got some really good questions from you, for you tonight, Norman. But of course, if people want to send their questions in, they can email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. Yeah, and there's some feedback on one of my, as I predicted, um, the audience knows far more than me and they, I predicted we get some correction to my answer to a question, uh, which was why do ACE inhibitors, which are used um, for people after heart attacks and also to reduce blood pressure, why do people get a cough? And yes, Dr. Vera Jaglamudi, who's an intensive care specialist, has been listening. We have a very well-informed audience and says with regards to ACE inhibitors and cough, it's because ACE, which is an enzyme, also metabolises bradykinin and the substance P, which causes cough. Therefore, inhibiting ACE increases bradykinin and substance P and then for, therefore increases cough. It seems so simple when they explain it like that. That's right. And there, there have been some papers which suggest you actually need that plus another mechanism. About 20%, I, I think I said 40% of people, I think about 20% of people is the current estimate of people who have coughs. But thank you for that. And if you get any corrections to any of our other questions or additions, don't hesitate to write them in. Yes, we love when we um, when we get to sound smart by reading out things that our audience sends into us. And Norman, Lisa has emailed in saying that she understands that in some cultures they do not burp their babies. And she asks, does burping a baby after a feed really help to alleviate wind? What about just la- allowing the baby to lie and stretch out or be held upright? Does that achieve the same relief? She's writing on behalf of... Bubba Joe, her one-month-old baby, Joanne. I'm glad we got in early, Lisa, and didn't leave that question lying. Well, <laughs> the answer is like a lot of things in baby care, they've not been properly studied and they're part of our habits and practice and culture. But there has been a randomised trial of uh, burping for the prevention of colic and regurgitation in healthy infants, which is really why you do it. And you know how many parents... Blouses, shirts, jumpers have been ruined by the catches bar- in my the experience. process. And <laughs> over, over it goes, not to mention anyone with smell. So, um, the randomized trial 71 mother baby dyads in the community setting, and they were looking at colic, well, what, what you call colic, you know, a discomfort, bloating, wind, that sort of thing. We, we tend to ascribe an irritable baby to colic. We don't even know if it is colic. But anyway, they looked at the sort of behaviour, colicky behaviour, and they showed no difference between babies who were burped and babies who weren't burped. So As, we've mm. just relieved the backs of a generation of Australian babies. They don't have to be thumped to actually get their wind up. They can just leave them to their own devices. Uh, in my experience, it's just an excuse to cuddle a, a little milky baby. That's right. And, and it's an excuse for the baby to say, stuff you, I'm going to ruin your shirt. 
<laughs> Look, it cuts both ways. Mm. Um, David's asking, after last week's report, we were talking about air quality and the importance of um, HEPA filters to perhaps reduce airborne spread of coronavirus. Uh, would air purifiers, humidifiers, etc., assist in cleaning the air for locations like offices or even radio studios where opening a window is just not practical? Well, humidifiers, not. Air purifiers, some... Um, you know, there are air purifiers that they claim re- remove viruses, um, but not all probably do it w- well enough. And there's probably a regulatory issue here. Um, if you really want to do it, you've got to aim for, for something called a HEPA filter, which does capture particles of that size. It doesn't kill the virus, but it removes it from the air. And there have been plenty of studies now showing that approved HEPA filters do significantly reduce the viral load in, in rooms and are, are a good idea. Probably should be used in hotel quarantine uh, and so on. And aircraft use HEPA filters and always have. I'm going to put you on the spot, Norman. How does a HEPA filter actually work? It's simply a filter, and the filter captures the uh, physical filter, as far as I know, that uh, captures these small particles. We're going to have some environmental scientists or um, engineers emailing us this week to clarify that one. Uh, Gwyn is asking, are there any accurate antibody tests available in Australia and could antibody testing be a better alternative to a booster vaccination? I'm assuming Gwyn means maybe you wouldn't need a vaccination if you were already immune. That doesn't sound right to me, though. Um, Yeah. Look, the basis on which Israel has instituted uh, COVID-19 Booster, booster shots is on the basis of declining antibodies. So they've done antibody tests on people and found that month by month they do decline and they get down to a low level. So the, the, the answer is yes. But the question is knowing at which antibody level you would actually decide that you're going to immunise. And that would be very expensive for dubious benefit. And many new vaccines not all, far from all, but many have, are in three-dose schedules, or at least they start off that way, hepatitis B, H, human papillomavirus, even triple antigen in babies, you know, three-dose vaccines. And they don't do antibody testing. They just, on average, they know that if you give these uh, um, vaccines six or eight weeks apart uh, in three doses, you get a pretty good antibody response, which lasts. And you tend to test it out in terms of recurrence of the infection, which sounds a bit gross, but that, that is actually how they assess it. Are you getting recurrence of the infection? And over at time... At a population level. At a population level, that's right. So, yes, you could do an antibody test, but it's cumbersome and it's not foolproof and you're going to miss people. You're much better instituting, instituting a population-wide booster at, a, at an agreed period of time after your original vaccine and that's going to capture capture everybody as long as there's no harm to that and so far there is no harm. Well following on from that Pauline's asking there's been recent discussion about the effectiveness of vaccines wearing off after about six months and many healthcare workers including Pauline's daughter had their vaccines back in March or April so that's nearly six months ago. What are the implications of this for those workers and the hospital system? Well the, I've been thinking about this and I suspect the government is too that um, that healthcare workers, aged care workers who got it, who were lucky enough to get it at that point, uh, first line uh, people working in airports and hotel quarantine, they're all the people who got that very early on this year, they are coming up probably in November, December to needing booster shots. Um, So, yes, that's getting pretty close. Up until now in this pandemic in Australia, the vaccine rollout has felt a little halted because 
supply of anything that wasn't AstraZeneca has been patchy, but by November, December, we're going to have a pretty steady supply of mRNA vaccines. Yeah, and there should be enough memory. We're immunising down to 12 years old and that's got to get on the road. But we should, by the time November comes along, have enough spare that you could give it, you could give boosters to that group of people. And it just adds to the imperative that over 60 should not be hanging around waiting for an mRNA vaccine because they're now, you know, they'll almost certainly be in a queue behind 12-year-olds and they're likely now to be in a queue behind people who need boosters who are our frontline people. Well, that's it for the mailbag. Of course, if you have a question, you can email healthreport at abc.net.au. But I can see a lot of people with coronavirus questions. Of course, just a little reminder, Norman and I also do a daily podcast about the coronavirus. It's called CoronaCast and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And we answer questions all the time. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.